Welcome to Beyond the Bullet Points, a podcast from Stoddard's Ranging Guns, where Ken Bay explores the personalities, histories, and drive behind Stoddard's brands and the organizations it supports. Tommy Stoner spent 29 years in the military. He grew up in Colorado and enlisted when he was 17, the youngest age at which you can enlist. He had seen one of his high school buddies in uniform. At the time, he thought the uniform was slick, as Tommy put it, and his buddy's stories were filled with adventure. When he started basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, he had just turned 18 and was one of the youngest members of the force. He spent the majority of time in the special ops community split between the Army Rangers and the U.S. Special Army Forces. Transitioning from nearly three decades in the military to civilian life, and specifically finding a job, can be a real challenge. Where do you start? Tommy connected with Your Grateful Nation, which helps organizations understand the positive impact a special operations veteran can bring to their organizations. And Your Grateful Nation not only facilitates the introduction, they help prepare those veterans with the interview process, and with making the transition. Your Grateful Nation has more than 45 hiring partners in its growing network, everything from grassroots companies to Fortune 100 companies. Companies like Verizon, Home Depot, Goldman Sachs, Tesla, Fox Sports, Modus, Google, Raytheon, Cox Communications, Booz Allen Conti, First Data, and many others. Also, among those partners is SunTrust, After 29 years in the military, Tommy connected with SunTrust through Your Grateful Nation, and Tommy now spends his days in the business intelligence group at SunTrust. I sat down with Tommy to understand what it was like to serve in the military for nearly three decades and what it was like for him when he got out. Uh, Thank you for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, So I have here Tommy Stoner. What's it it like to grow up in the military? You know, it was good. uh, It's kind of made me into the person I am. Um, you know, the military's got it's definitely has its pluses and, and its minuses. And it took me a little while to, to learn to sort those out from the, the things that regardless where you go, like standing in long lines and wasting a lot of time and things like that from the things that are very righteous about it, which is, you know, protect and defend our country and its ideals and things it stands for. And the folks around the world that, you know, stand for the exact same things. And, Serving with people that regardless of your background differences and, you know, what you did after after you left our the unit, um, serving with people that, you know, you, you knew stood for the same things as you. And ultimately, when things came to a crux, they would give their lives for you. It's a pretty powerful thing. When you enlist at the age of 17 and serve for 29 years, you grew up with a different set of values. We talked about what values are ingrained when you grow up that way. And what do you think civilians miss by not doing so? I th- I think the one thing that people don't who haven't served in the military um, for a while, if they didn't serve long and kind of had that ingrained with them, or if they didn't serve in a time of conflict, uh, the one thing you you miss is that underlying you know feeling and factor of people would do anything for you for a common ideal. You know, it's a uh, 
that self-sacrifice piece. Uh, that that's probably the biggest thing I, I see different in the civilian community, kind of the air quotes around it, than what I saw in the military. Um, is that ultimate foundational belief in a higher purpose? You know, and, and I'm not talking a religious higher purpose. I'm talking a heart purpose of servitude to to those on your left and right. I think that's the biggest thing that that I don't see out there. Tommy's military service took him all over the world. We talked about where Tommy served and for how long. I was able to travel about 51 different countries, some longer than others, but, you know, some of them cumulative multiple years in countries like Colombia, you know, to, to a few weeks doing training iterations with security forces of those countries or or tours inside the embassies helping to advise, you know, our country teams on um, partner security for regional security. So it sounds like a lot of logistical type experience, a lot of projects. Well, he, you do a lot of projects. I mean, we, we don't in the military, we don't view projects kind of like, you know, my my workplace does is these discrete things. It's uh, it's efforts. It's these discrete, you know, these multiple lines of efforts that we work. So um, a lot of people have this vision that everything is you know, folks coming out of the back of a helicopter, you know, with night vision goggles. And, and, uh, there's a lot more to it than that, right? That's what, that's what we call the pointy end of the spear, but there's a lot that goes into one getting those, those guys coming off the back of the helicopter with goggles to where, where they're going to be. And then, you know, what the special operations community is really trying to do is actually prevent a lot of these conflicts by being regionally present, you know, when there's not conflicts going on, um, again, to, to really help develop in partnership with those regional security forces to prevent things. So, yeah, there's a lot of logistics to it, but there's a lot, a lot of other things that go into it, like, um, you know, sitting down and working with our embassy teams to educate them on, on what we do and why it's important to be for, uh, have a forward presence. And then also working with our partner nations, you know, those security forces to, to advise and assist them on how to better structure and operate, you know, their forces and, and ultimately to actually help them in some cases to actually go out and, and combat threats um, in those areas. I asked Tommy about his scariest moments in the military. I'll be honest with you. I think the most um, fearful moments for me was in personal fear. It was being somewhere remote, watching my teammates out doing things that were pretty dangerous, and you feel kind of powerless in a lot of ways. And and it's almost kind of like your mother watching folks. Uh, for me, that was probably the worst than actually being out there forward, you know, having bullets flying. Your Grateful Nation believes that special operations veterans are well-trained to manage large groups of people. Tommy managed large organizations. At one time, more than 1,200 special operations personnel. Well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. In our community, you go from everything from being an individual contributor all the way up to, you know, being in charge of pretty large organizations. Um the special operations task force I commanded had 1,200 folks who were a part of it. And that was everything from my unit members that I directly commanded back in the States, but then attachments like U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, Marine Corps special operations folks, the very, you know, uh, what we called enablers, um, such as logistics and intelligence that came in to help out and even uh, government civilians and contractors. So you, you would literally flow back and forth from, being in charge of an organization like that, you know, usually smaller to 
being a single person out there doing doing work, you know, discrete lines of effort out there. And what is it that civilians misunderstand the most about veterans? It's less that, that civilians don't understand that servitude, because there's plenty of people out there doing servitude uh, for the, you know, for example, inside the communities, you know, I'm part of some other nonprofits that are helping out the community, like veterans homelessness and veterans unemployment. So there's plenty of people out there dedicating a lot of time and true belief to it. Really, for me, it's interesting to go into um, companies and other places of employment, see the different perspective of um, of kind of the the servitude towards towards the mission. I was asked once at work, like. Hey, what's the difference? And I probably overstepped my bounds and saying, Hey, would anybody in this company die for me? You know, the answer probably is no. And, it, you know, and that, and that's just such a fundamental difference from the place we came to. I knew that, you know, in, in the Ranger Regiment, we had our, our Ranger Creed and one of the, one of the stanzas had, I will never leave a fallen comrade, you know, and it probably for the um, public, for those that have seen Black Hawk Down, I mean, that was all about never leaving the fallen comrades. And it would have been easy for, you know, the Rangers and other special missions units folks to leave, easily leave those dead bodies there. And we would come back with not even a fraction of the casualties we had. But, you know, the fact that we were never going to leave anybody out there, regardless of they're dead or alive, um, pretty powerful. So you, can't, you take that underlying fundamental belief. I mean, that is... You know, you just don't have that, at, you know, in a company out there. Um, and it's not a bad thing because that's not what those companies are about, right? You know, it's not like you work at a bank and you're going to be out there in that type environment. It's just do people truly believe in what that organization is trying to do? Um, and I think in a lot of cases it's it's just not the case. So when you're, you know, I'm sitting there working with people, you know, that's that's what I miss is everybody around around me gravitating towards that you know, fortunately, I do work for a pretty good team at the at the place of employment I'm at, and uh, you know, really believe in what they're doing. But I'm, I'm talking more holistically about the work. You know, just larger organizations and you know, communities. I assume there's some unique challenges in making the transition from the military to the the workforce. And you're at SunTrust, by the way. Is that right? That, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, what what are some of the unique challenges that in, in making that transition that you've experienced? Well, you know, it's it's different for um, each person depending on how long they've served. But I I think ultimately and fundamentally for each of us, particularly coming out of the special operations community, is it's that brotherhood, you know, and sisterhood of those folks that were around us that believed in that fundamental mission. So when you leave the service, particularly our community, you're detached from that. So of course you're still staying in touch with them, but. But again, there's that fundamental foundational base that that you always had there. Uh, the next piece is really just trying to figure it out what it is you're going to do out there. Something that's going to ignite a passion in you and give you the opportunity to to make a difference, like we did in in our fields. But and probably the third thing is being around a community of top notch folks. And when I say top notch, everybody's top notch. You know, in the special operations community, when regardless if you're a SEAL or a Green Beret, an Army Ranger, or Marine Corps Special Operations Operator, you know, there's a pipeline and selection process. So the folks who actually end up there, you know, their percentage of a percentage, the, the U.S. Special Operations Command represents about 1% of the military. And that's the Special Operations Command is mostly composed of folks who haven't even been through selection assessment. They're those kind of attachments and enablers. Um, so when you take the people who have actually been through that selection assessment, it's 
it's a minute fraction of of the force. So does it translate well, having that background and going into the corporate world? It does, because ultimately when you go from that special operations community, what what does everybody in that community want to do? They want to win, right? And and they want to excel. So then the other component that every one of those forces select for is the ability to do that as a team. So you can find uh, plenty of people that want to win and excel, um, but can you do it as a team? Because that that's where organizations really become powerful. So that's what fundamentally at the core every every person who's coming out of the special operations community has is that hey I want to I want to win and I want to win well and I want to win as a team. So that translates to any environment, and then you add other traits like leadership, the ability to no- negotiate, the the ability to see things in a bigger ta- context, all the way down to this very discrete, tactical, granular level see that holistic picture and then be able to actually work across multifunctional, you know, teammates and sometimes even different cultures, you know, because we've worked across all these different countries. You bring that in a work environment, um, it's very powerful and I think it directly translates. One of the interesting things at work is I is I moved in the hiring manager role and, and watched hiring with my uh, peers and superiors in the, in the organization. It was always kind of interesting because you'd be a part of Hey, we have this thing we need to solve for. And the majority of the discussion was about the traits that a special operations person can bring to the table. It's that leadership. It's the ability to work as a team and problem solving and end-to-end ownership of that problem set. Um, and then a little bit about the specific technical capability, right? It's like, oh, and then they might need to know something about computers or, or logistics. But 90% of the discussion or 80% was about these other things that when they brought in candidates or interviewed people, yeah, they, they had all these that 20% or 10%, but they were missing that 80%. So it's like, wouldn't you rather solve for that really hard 80% and then kind of, you know, surround that person with that 80% with those people that, that have that 20% knowledge and be able to enable that person to, to make it happen. Um, so, yeah, I think it translates pretty directly and, and how did how did you make this transition? How did you come about doing it? And what type of advice would you have for somebody who is still in the military and trying to make this transition? Yeah, so I, I, I made the transition very directly, particularly at SunTrust, through an organization called Your Grateful Nation. So it's a nonprofit that is focused on the special operations uh, community specifically. Um, I went to a fundraiser actually here in Atlanta and met somebody who worked at uh, – at uh, SunTrust, Chris Wood, and he's a, one of the managing directors inside the bank. And we had a great dialogue at, at dinner. And at that time, I was not interested in coming to Atlanta. And I, I hadn't considered working in the finance industry. But after dialogue with him, he was able to give me introduce some people at the bank, which gave me the opportunity to actually come to the bank and talk to some folks and ultimately landed in a position where a role was crafted for me to, that really was that, – put in place to help solve some challenges that the, uh, the organization was having. And the key thing about that organization was one, they're able to network me in, but there were some front end um, aspects to it in terms of education and workshops and development that they put me through to be able to go into a company and know myself and know how my skills translated to the civilian workforce and then also other skills such as the ability to interview and, and network and things like that. And so they basically 
arm me with the things I needed and then put me in a place where I could, I could execute with, you know, the things I already had in hand. So a very positive transaction for me. So my recommendation to others out there is there's a ton of veterans organizations that, that do this. Uh, some are better than others. So find a quality one and uh, use it and start your network and start to network. Uh, the one thing I, I have found is that there are an overwhelming majority of folks out there inside um, inside our, our uh, workforce that really do want to help veterans transition themselves. I think the biggest challenge is people just don't know how to execute it. So these organizations really help kind of bridge the gap between the veteran and the workforce out there, the, uh, the hiring companies, to be able to actually make that transition in place. So I would say... Find, find an organization like that, use it, and start to build your networks and develop yourself. Well, we're very fond of your Grateful Nation. We, we do our part in supporting the organization. And uh, Tell us a little bit more about your Grateful Nation and how someone either on the military side or on the corporate side might get more involved in, in your Grateful Nation. Sure, absolutely. So um, your Grateful Nation is a nonprofit that started – uh, a few years ago, so in the uh, 2014 time frame, um, maybe a little bit earlier. But really it started after the Bin Laden raid. Um, some of the team members from the Bin Laden raid were in Washington, D.C. And, and had the opportunity to meet some civic leaders up there. Um, and during the dialogue with these team members, some of which was, hey, what are you going to do after you leave the military? Um, some of the civic leaders that were at this were quite shocked that a lot of these very exceptional special operations members really had no clue as to what they were going to do. And some of the comments they were making clearly showed that they were undershooting on their value proposition to to a company and a corporation or, or even to be able to go out on their own and do something. So some uh, some great leaders out there took it upon themselves to pull this organization together to you know give a um, give a structured mechanism for these special operations members to to actually start to understand that they did have a value proposition to the, to the corporate and civilian workforce and and uh, put a pathway in to to educate them uh, through the process. So the program really intakes these candidates, and again, the Grateful Nation is specifically on special operations community, intakes them, has some dialogue with them about what, what they think their goals are in life at the time, you know, where they want to be, you know, because some folks want to get out and go back to where they grew up or have a specific place on a map they want to do or a specific industry. So um, takes that all in and, and, and does an assessment of, of that and then starts them into a pipeline where um, they actually get some assessments on their ability to integrate with the workforce and help them understand who they are in relation to to the um, to the corporate world and then actually starts a process of putting them in touch with a mentor to give them good mentorship both for development and then also a mentor to help them network and then we plug them into a growing base of uh, companies and and uh, frankly a rolodex of people to start to help to help, help place people i think most po folks know that um the network using the network you know you can read the stats 80 percent of the, the good jobs come through the power of the network so that's what we're trying to enable through your grateful nation so develop the candidates and and um 
get them in that pipeline. For those candidates out there, uh, special operations veterans and folks getting ready to transition, go to www.yourgratefulnation.org and uh, click the candidate link and it'll walk you through what you need to do to get uh, enrolled. And that same website also has a sponsor uh, link on there. So whether folks just want to donate to help uh, ensure that there's a financial base to help this process, because the actual training, education, and networking, on average, costs anywhere between ten and fifteen thousand dollars. Because we do have executive coaches who help with this uh, education piece, and then, as necessary, we'll also put people on a plane and fly into locations to to help with that networking. So there's that financial piece, and then there's also the uh, hey, if we want to just bring our company into this and help out, it's you can sign up there. I definitely recommend folks to get in touch with an organization like this and not try to go it alone. Does the military help as well? Do they have a transition program? They do. And, you know, some some folks will throw stones at the military. So just because I was in and out for various reasons, um, I actually had a break of service for a very short time um, once. So the transition program between when I first got out in the early 90s, the Gulf War started, so I came back in. So that transition uh, assistance at that time was literally, here's your DD-214. It's a piece of paper that shows your service. And it's a pretty, pretty important piece of paper. And a briefing about dental benefits and uh, medical benefits from the VA. And that was it. And I'm not kidding you. Now there's a transition program. It's a week that everybody has to go to. Um, but you have to remember, it's a massive amount of folks that come into the Department of Defense. You know, it's it's the largest corporate employer, you know, if you look at it that way in the world. So it, it's a tough job. I, I think the military is starting to realize that they need to do a better job. Um, the assessor, assistant secretary of defense that oversees the transition services actually came down here to Atlanta to one of our vet Atlanta events last year to talk and uh, help understand what, what other organizations are out there, kind of like your grateful nation to, to make better connections and help their pipeline. But uh, that, that program the military has, it's called different things and different services in the army. It's called the transition assistance program. I think today they're calling it the soldier for life program. It's, it's good, but it's just not enough. You know, it's, it's the most basic foundational things you can get, but you need more. Um, The reality is, is, with that basic foundation, you just folks need to really, really take it seriously and plan it just like any of the missions they are going to go on out there in, in the force um, because it's not going to give you everything you need. And so start the process early. When do you start the process? You, you have to start the process early. So what I, I uh, if I would go back, you know, I started about a year out and uh, going back, I tell all my peers, I say, when you think you're about two years out, that's when you really need to start the process. Um, so if you're, you know, you're a young person, you're in a four-year enlistment, two years out, it's just really put yourself in the right mental state. You know, there's things like finances. If I get out, where are my finances? What am I going to do with my family? There's that and, you know, in the piece of what am I going to do? You take a colonel who's been in for 26, 29, 30 years, you know, that's all they know probably. So there, there's a lot that's got to go into thinking about, hey, what am I going to do after this? Some folks just purely retire and get an RV and cruise the U.S. and that's awesome. And, and others want to go do something different, uh, much like myself in their life. So two years is a good point because it takes you about a year to get your mind wrapped around, hey, I'm getting out and I'm getting away from this. 
And uh, then it takes about a year to truly start to build networks and get good at being able to talk to people um, and actually purge a lot of the military lingo out of your discussion so that the person across the table actually understands what you're talking about. Because we don't realize how many acronyms and slang that we use until you sit across from somebody that is not even remotely connected to the military and they just give you this clueless look and they tell you out of the last 30 words you said they didn't understand six of them you know and uh it's it's a interesting process the networking is the biggest piece that takes time it just doesn't happen overnight and um building that network base is is the key because it's that network that's going to land or you know land you the position that you want we talked about what the business world misunderstands the most about veterans Two, two perceptions out there are the hardest to to overcome. One, what you just mentioned, that, that everything in the military is dictated and there's a process for everything, so there's no ambiguity. The other one is that every veteran is some sort of damaged good because of the war. Because there's, there's a million TV shows and other things out there that, you know, about PTSD and all these other things. And, and it's uh, both of them are inaccurate. So, so let's talk the first one. Yeah, you know, inside the military, when you come in as a 17-year-old kid off the street, right? Yes, you're being told what to do because you don't know anything, but it's very similar to any civilian workplace, right? If you're a first-time employee going to you know, a construction company, somebody's pretty much telling you what to do. It's no different in the military, right? There's always this learning curve. What I will tell you, having been in, in the corporate world for my limited time there, I will tell you that the military is probably more dynamic in their thinking process uh, these days than, than probably some civilian companies, particularly if they're bigger because they tend to be like this top-down driven corporate culture, kind of like the Department of Defense. Now, if you took the military from the 70s, yeah, probably, maybe, but but I think our military today are a lot more dynamic thinkers. You know, these 20-some-year-old captains and sergeants were out in villages and they had, you know, towns, if you would, of that they are protecting and working with of fifty to 75,000 people. And nobody was telling them there was no playbook on how to build security, governance, and infrastructure in an Afghan village. There's no book in the military or on Amazon.com that's going to tell you how to do that. So it was a thinking man's game, and, and the folks out there were thinking. Um, in terms of the education our, our military goes through, if you look at take an average Army officer, you know, they go through – you know, their initial training to learn their skills, it's heavily focused on leadership. Um, the principal of the Army focuses on now something called Mission Command. It's sort of always been there, but it's reinforced. We call it Commander's Intent. It's not telling you how to do it. It's, hey, here's here's a high level what we're doing. Here's the why behind it. Here's what this needs to look like when it's done and some key things that need to happen. And they give give people the flexibility to go go fix it. So even even in the standardized military, if you think there's a lot of rules and processes and flows in in a combat situation, it is the most ambiguous situation you can wade into. There's no process for that, right? There's some higher level process and procedures to do some things. But really what you're applying is this kind of paradigm or construct to, to working through and solving those situations. Um 
So, so it doesn't really exist even in the conventional forces, and that certainly doesn't exist in the special operations community. If you, you know, if Tommy Stoner as a captain walked into an army, you know, special forces, the Green Berets, you know, operational attachment alpha, what we call our A team or just the team. If I would have walked in my team room and started doing the what we call the pointy edge hand and shoving on people's faces and chest to tell them exactly what to do. They'd have threw me out, you know, as a team into the hallway and threw my stuff out after me. I mean, you can't go into a, a place where people are expected to be type A plus and and not uh, and react positively. Somebody telling them exactly what to do. So I, again, I think that's the biggest misnomer that somebody coming out of the military has to have somebody tell them exactly what to do all the time. Now we always try to to take that chaos and bring structure to it, right? When you're in this firefight, let's take a firefight even at the basic. It's Every firefight starts off as complete chaos, regardless of how well you go into it, the best plan. It always, the first part of it is chaos until you start to figure out what's going on and then manage through it. And then it starts to become this pattern. So we try to take this chaos and bring structure to it. It's the same thing with Going into an embassy where, you know, you got a security situation in a country, take Colombia or some other country, you go in there, it's kind of chaos and you figure it out and then you figure out who you need to talk to and you start to wrap structure around this chaos. That's what we do. Yes, the output is a structured process, but we don't need that structured process to go into it. We may have a high level approach, but we don't need that somebody telling us what to do unless you're a 17 year old private, you know, such as myself back in the day. Um, and and uh, I, I would say that in a lot of the corporate worlds where they're trying to solve problems, oftentimes that, you know, are new and, you know, because of the changing business world, it's the same thing. And it's, that's why I think our folks can excel at it. The, the damage good piece, uh, that's another one that I just I didn't believe I'd heard about it. I was like, whatever, that's just an anecdote. So, you know, one time experience I actually went to a uh, another nonprofit and we were doing a meeting to talk about some things we we're going to do and. And it was for veterans. We were targeting veterans for this. So it was going after homeless veterans and, and figuring out how we could help them. I want to identify them and then do an outreach and, you know, let them know there are some other programs out there. And uh, one of the other members at this event just really started going off about veterans. And, you know, basically it was like every veteran had PTSD and, uh, you know, just had these issues from the wars. And I really had to I had to stop that. I mean, to the point, I, I typically don't like to interrupt people, but I actually had to stop the conversation and say, okay, that's time for some education. Let's have some dialogue about this because um, I think that that's a problem when people perceive that because, you know, if that's in the back of a hiring manager's mind, it's a challenge. I asked Tommy how a veteran determines what the right fit would be in the business world for that veteran. Take, take the bank. You know, I'm sure somebody will come in as maybe – Somebody working some private wealth management, working with clients to help them with their finances and retiring, and they work their way through. And they may be very specialized, but they tend to stay in this kind of functional area all the way up to a certain level. Where in the military, we we became generalists. That's how the term general actually came about. So you may have been a very specific, like a tanker or an Army Green Beret, but at a certain point, you become broader and broader and broader all the way up to the top. So you're used to working across different spans of, of and layers. Um, so we kind of work backwards. That's why I said it, it's a little bit different process for, for the younger um, teammates coming out. Typically, those captains or mid-grade sergeants coming out, 
they're actually pretty laser focused. Like, hey, I want to go back to Boston and I want to work in technology or I want to go into private wealth management or, hey, I want to go work for a company that's looking at, you know, uh, drones. It's the more senior folks that have went through this generalist process, been in the military for a long time. It's a little bit harder. But I would say always go down to um, the advice I was getting, which is what are you passionate about? You know, technology. I like technology. I'm always on the news reading about technology. Well, maybe you want to get into kind of the product side of the technology or sales, or maybe you want to be on the development team side. I think that's a good place to start. And hobbies are a great one. It's what do you find yourself doing when you come back from from work, if you would, or, or the unit, or what are you reading about on on your deployment? What's what's on your nightstand? I think that's a great place for folks to start. And uh, from there, you can kind of explore, hey, what what opportunities are available in this in this field and have conversations. Tommy stressed that having the right people with the right talents in place is a shared value between the military and the business world. I think that's something that the special operations community understands fundamentally, right? That's why we have a selection assessment. You got to put your best people on the ground because with the best people there, they're going to figure it out. You don't have to micromanage them, give them directions. They're going to work through adversity. They're going to do as a team and they're going to, they're going to want to win. So I, I think writ large, that's, that's probably the biggest thing that the corporate world can, can learn from the special operations community or even the military, if you would. And we talked about additional challenges for veterans when they start interviewing in the business world. Negotiation. Like you don't negotiate in the military for like salaries and stuff like that. Uh, hands down, unanimous, it has been the toughest piece for a lot of people's transition once they're actually in the job process. Because it's just uncomfortable um, to, to negotiate like that. You just don't do it right. The best special forces you know, sergeant is making the exact same money, take away like the special pays um, for like parachuting and stuff like that is as a person doing the basics somewhere else. There's no monetary compensation difference. Um, Again, there's some hazardous duty pays and stuff like that, but uh, those pays apply out in the non-special operations force as well. So it's just, you don't negotiate salaries in the military. So that's, that's a tough one. The other one is actually talking about yourself in interviews and resumes. You just don't, we don't do that, right? The quiet professional. That's a that's a tough one. So, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself. Almost every person goes into those interviews like, well, my team was super successful at doing this and we did this and the organization was able to do this. And it's tough when you're sitting there with an interviewer and they're like, no, no, no. What did you do? It, it just you almost it's this physical reaction. Like I remember the first time I had to talk like that, it was an absolute physical reaction. You know, I just, my skin was bristling. I felt very uncomfortable in, in saying, well, here's what I did. It's just, we don't talk or behave like that. It's 180 degrees from what is core and fundamental to us to, to, to be able to do that. So the mentors and coaches that we have inside your grateful nation help help get people used to doing that in the appropriate way. Talk about themselves, um, you know, and, and again, turn it back to the team success because nobody wins alone, but, but get us out of that little shell that we have. I just really want to reinforce for, for the veterans, uh, particularly those that are getting ready to transition is don't try and do this alone. And really even for those that have been out, you know, the, the folks that are transitioning do not do it alone. There's a ton of resources out there. 
And even if you don't go to a professional organization, you know, it can start off as easily with, Hey, I'm just a veteran who's transitioning. I'm not looking for a job from you. Just really, I'm looking for help. We also talked about what veterans can do to help. For those who have found success, you know, you owe it back to the community to, to pay it back. It's, you know, to me, it's still that fundamental piece that these are still our brothers and sisters out there. And it's no different than we're at war, you know, fighting. You owe it to them to help them out, make sure they don't fail. So if you found success, you need to turn it back on your community. Probably the biggest thing I've seen out there, it's been impressive, are some of these uh, some of these companies that have been started by veterans. And, and we were just talking before we started this interview about some of them. Um, and, and they're on the podcast. It's been impressive to watch the veteran community start to really turn back into itself to, to help other veterans, you know, whether it's deal with things like, you know, PTSD for, for those that, that have are struggling or folks are really just trying to struggling to adjust or, Hey, reaching out to help folks transition. There's massive entrepreneurship uh, efforts going on. A great couple of great ones here in the land area. It's, it is absolutely impressive to watch folks really helping each other. Tommy provided his email for those who are interested in reaching out for more information. Yeah, it's uh, it's my Gmail account would be the easiest. It's T-E-Stoner, S-T-O-N-E-R, at gmail.com. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Yeah, absolutely. One, I appreciate your support for the veterans community writ large. Two, support directly to your grateful nation. So, um. <laughs> The the company Stoddard's has been great. So last two years have been supporting our organization, and I can't thank you enough for that. And then uh, this this podcast and this outreach will absolutely continue to help us out. Well, we, we're happy to do it. Thank you. Thanks. This is Ken Bay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bullet Points.